Thanks, Steve, for that reading. Well, both of those, actually. Uh, and I've got to say, that singing is fantastic. Oh, we're sitting here, we don't know how many are behind us. There's not a lot of us here, but it sounds like there's a couple of hundred, really. Sensational. And thanks, Andrew, for playing and just lifting it. It's been wonderful. Whatever happens, are you able to say, well, whatever happens, it's all for the honour and glory of God, for the proclamation of the gospel, to celebrate your relationship with Jesus? I confess that my comfortable existence works against this. I'm happy just to be living the sort of life available to Christians in this country. It's not hard. Sure, there's some cultural pushback against Christianity in general throughout Western culture. But far, apart from being a bit annoyed about the so-called woke nonsense and other stuff such as what is described as progressive ideas, life is pretty good. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Fathers, we open these few verses of Paul to the Philippians. Just teach us what you would have us learn encourage and challenge us through these words and may your spirit use them to continually transform us into the likeness of Jesus. We pray in his great and wonderful name. Amen. Well firstly let's once again reflect on Paul's situation here. Uh, I thought you know three verses of Philippians how can you preach for five minutes on that and I might be going for half an hour so just gird your loins and get ready for the ride. Let's reflect, we'll recap, and we'll do it with some pictures. Paul is writing to the church in Philippi. It's not there yet. Uh, I think Rod's following my order of service, which is good, from prison. Paul was familiar with prison. He's been there before, as the Philippians themselves would remember. And he's probably imprisoned when he writes this letter, either in Ephesus or Rome. We already know a little bit about this city of Philippi. Uh, Rod gave us a great description of it a few weeks ago. It's a Greco-Roman city established 42 BC after a battle between Octavian and Mark Antony, for those who like ancient history. And here's the map to reorient yourselves to Philippi's position on the coast in Macedonia, what would be, uh, you might think of as Greece. First place he planted a church in Europe. It's laid out like a typical Roman city and in fact it was called the Mini Rome and it was given the highest privilege possible for a Roman mun provincial municipality. It was governed by Roman law. The citizens were Roman citizens. Uh, we've seen a picture just previously of the ancient Philippi, what it probably looked like. Not much chop today. Andrew and I were there a few years ago and plenty of rocks to sit on. The residents enjoyed the privileges of Roman citizenship. Though, although they enjoyed these advantages, they were Greek or Macedonian, speaking Greek and living under foreign rule. Philippi was the first place in Europe where Paul planted a church. If you go to Acts 16, you can read the story of the planting of this church. Byrne last week told us about the debates was having with himself with this existential question live or die or in Paul's words from Philippians for me to live for, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain 
hand that question. And yet, what shall I choose? And although he was confident of remaining alive to serve Christ, even Paul could not be completely certain. And he writes, whatever happens. Whatever happens. Well, what is the whatever in whatever happens? Well, for Paul, the whatever is currently prison. And as he writes, or he probably dictates to Timothy, because you recognise this letter comes from Paul and Timothy, as many of Paul's letters do. We tend to forget about the apprentice that walked with Paul, who has been trained up by Paul to be another leader in the church when Paul was not able to be there because he was on the die component of his existential question. So what is, whatever is a life and death matter for Paul here? But as I think Paul reflect, uh, Byrne reflected last week, Paul, Paul's letter to the Philippians resonates with joy, joy that Paul has in proclamation of the gospel. This is his number one priority, wherever he is. And what a remarkable testimony this is to the confidence Paul has in Jesus. These Philippians probably don't need to be reminded that when Paul first preached the gospel in Philippi, the Roman lictors beat both himself and Silas and then imprisoned them. Doesn't have a good record with the Romans there. But as Paul and Silas were singing hymns to God, there was an earthquake and their chains fell off. And rather than fleeing their prison, they first preached the gospel to the jailer and his household. And you can read that in this chapter, Acts 16. It comes up in verse 32. And after the jailer cleaned them up, Paul baptised him and his family, and then the jailer took them to his own home where they were fed. And the rest of the story of this imprisonment gives us an example of um, something we're familiar with, a political cover-up, as the authorities realised that they'd imprisoned Roman citizens. And this is actually a bit of a no-no for Roman citizens to be imprisoned in a Roman colony. They'd overreached their authority. But go back and read the story for yourself in Acts 16, 38 to 40. But Paul knows that whatever happens, these whatever happen moments through his many life experiences of the gospel, he's very familiar with them. So this is the Paul here in chains for Christ once again as he writes to the Philippian congregation. This is the Paul we heard a few weeks ago when John Lee unpacked two Corinthians to give us a bit of Paul's resume. Great endurance, troubles, hardships and distresses, beatings, hard work, sleeplessness and hunger. This is the Paul whom Byrne expanded on last week when Paul weighed up his continuing to live, to serve in fruitful labour for the gospel or to die and be with Christ. And this is the same Paul who now tells the Philippians that because of his imprisonment, the gospel has been advanced. Even the prison guards know that he's in jail because he's a Christian and others have been encouraged to speak the gospel more courageously. So while the authorities might have thought that this imprisonment would have silenced a troublemaker, it's had exactly the opposite effect. God will use every whatever situation to advance the gospel. For Paul, whatever happens, it doesn't matter if the gospel is advanced. But Paul is not concerned for himself. He is concerned to ensure the Philippian Christians remain strong and committed to the gospel. Look at the rest of that verse. Whatever happens, 
conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Paul is encouraging the Christians to use their whatever moment, or this whatever moment rather, he faces to live a life which shows they are worthy citizens of God's kingdom. And Paul has made his worthiness abundantly clear. In Philippians 1, Rod unpacked it a few couple of weeks ago. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. And as a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace cloud and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the law and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. In the purposes of God, Paul's imprisonment takes the gospel to the heart of the prison system. Who remembers the Sumptons? Anybody? A few of us. Well, Andrew and Jenny were missionaries we supported some years ago. They were serving in Ethiopia. And Andrew was in prison overnight for a traffic accident. And he had with him a solar-charged Bible pack. And this congregation here at Cherrybrook was instrumental in purchasing a number of these for Andrew and Jenny to use. Well, in prison that night, as Andrew was listening to a Bible passage in in the language of that region in Ethiopia, the prison guards were fascinated. So Andrew gave them the device. God used this whatever moment for Andrew to reach into the Ethiopian prison system. We don't know what happened with these prison guards, but it shows that prison bars will not keep the gospel out. And it's amazing. Our generosity to Andrew and Jenny reached into a prison in Addis Ababa. I'm sure that although Paul is referring to himself, whatever happens to me, it's as a lesson to the Philippians and by extension to us, whatever happens to you, the Philippians, whatever happens to you, Cherrybrook Presbyterian congregation, whatever happens to me, a member of this congregation, in all situations in life, whether life or death, whether persecution or pleasure, he says, conduct yourselves worthy of the gospel of Christ. The full impact of the Greek words Paul uses is to convey that sense of worthy citizenship, worthy belonging to a group. And although Philippi was a Roman colony making them Roman citizens, Paul reminds them that they are citizens of a greater place, heaven, a greater kingdom, heaven. And the distinctives of worthy citizens of God's kingdom will be the fruit of their relationship with God and the fellowship they share. And in addition, their allegiance to another Lord will be a challenge to the political establishment. The Romans did not, did not like disloyalty to the emperor. And Christians, actually, in the Roman Empire were called atheist or pagan because their loyalty to Christ challenged the divinity of the emperor. We move in further in this verse 27. See, we haven't even got through one verse yet. Be patient. Paul is emphatic that his worthy conduct will not go unnoticed. He's confident that their gospel, he's confident that their gospel-focused behaviour, and he knows he will either see it for himself or hear about it. 
says, Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. These Philippians lived in an anti-Christian culture, which was ultimately to lead to great persecution of Christians by the Roman state. And Paul knows that firsthand. We know his resume. Paul may see for himself the result of their steadfastness, if he comes back to them, or he may hear about it. Either way, he will know they will stand firm. He's encouraging them. Standing firm is our challenge too in our increasingly anti-Christian culture. Paul continues, continually through his letters, encourages Christians to live consistent Christian lives. And Paul encourages us too. Uh, Peter, sorry, encourages us too. Two Ps there. In 1 Peter 2. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Well, what does this solidarity look like? Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. And Paul's using a bit of military language here. They are, the Philippians, to stand firm as one man. They are to stand together in the spirit, they are reminded that standing firm together is the result of the Holy Spirit giving them new life and indwelling them with power and incorporating them into the church. Paul challenges us to stand shoulder to shoulder as one person. And this standing together as one man, standing side by side, reminds us of the unity, the teamwork and the solidarity which Christians should have and allow us to be fearless in the face of opposition. And this imagery wouldn't be lost on the Philippians. They would know the Roman military formation. Philip's there, yes. It was notoriously hard to break through this, what was called the tortoise or testudo. The soldiers stood closely together with interlocking shields and the soldiers further back in the formation had their shields locked over their heads. The testudo was very strong. It was a tight formation. This cohesion gave the Roman military an enormous advantage and allowed Rome to become the great empire of the ancient world. Well, we are to have this same courageous unity, strength as one mind and one spirit. We know also that Paul uses the imagery of the body to convey this idea of unity and interrelatedness as we serve in the body of Christ. What binds us together is not age, ethnic or background, wealth, but it is the gospel. Paul is aware that there will be opposition to Christians, both social and physical. And these Philippian Christians lived in a wonderful city with many privileges, but the stakes were high for Christians. Their opponents were both those who despised their unromanness and those who found themselves to be rebuked in their pagan lives. Paul's aware of this. And Christians over the centuries have suffered physical oppression in, a des in desperate human attempt to silence the gospel. And indeed, Tertullian, one of the second century church fathers, wrote that 
The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Paul himself reminds us too in Ephesians, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. The other component of our solidarity is to stand together without fear. Paul says, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. We are to be like soldiers, not budging from our post, loyal to our king and not compromising the gospel and the lordship of Jesus. We're not to fear. And Paul uses a strong word here for frightened. It's a word really conveying that sense of panic. Don't panic. Paul wants them to keep a cool head and remember that God is in control. Call Psalm 46. That little passage in the middle. Be still and know that I am God. Paul wants them to keep a cool head and remember that God is in control. This solidarity will allow them, and by extension to us, to stand fearlessly against before opposition. And this fearlessness becomes a confirmatory sign of our salvation. Paul, this man familiar with suffering, reminds us that not only has God granted, or if you like, graced us with the belief in Christ, but we're also being graced to suffer for him. Verse 28. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. Paul tells us, through the Philippians, that as we stand firmly together, committed to the gospel, we should see this as a sign that we will be saved. This confidence, this courage, this boldness will be a sign for the Philippians of salvation, by extension us, by God. Paul tells us in Romans too, I should say Romans as well, <laughs> if God is for us, who can be against us? That's from Romans 8.1. And this is a sign of judgment, salvation for Christians and destruction for their opponents. Not that their opponents knew about it particularly at that time. I'd like to give you a quote from Don Castle, who captures a bit of this far better than I could. Your changing character, your untied stand in defence of the gospel, your ability to withstand with meekness and without fear the opposition you must endure constitutes a sign. That sign speaks volumes both to the outside world and the Christian community. It is a sign of judgment against the world that is mounting the opposition. It is a sign of assurance that these believers really are the people of God and will be saved on the last day. Paul reminds the Philippians that the sign of their salvation was both the fact that God in his grace had granted them not only salvation, but granted them also suffering. And they only need to look at the example of Paul, a man familiar with suffering. As he says in Philippians 1, as was unpacked previously, for it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you're going through the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Do we hear complaints from Paul? No, just joy and the privilege he has of serving Christ. 
And how different for many of us when we complain about what in reality are minor inconveniences. These Philippians received the grace of being permitted to believe in Christ and the grace of being permitted to suffer for him and permitted to walk the way of Christ with him. Thus the suffering experienced by a Christian is not a sign of God's neglect, but is instead a reminder that God is at work in their life. And to Timothy, Paul tells Timothy, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. What does this mean for us? Well, I think there's some sobering thoughts if we put ourselves in the shoes of the Philippians, and so we should. As Rod reminded us, these letters of Paul were written for the whole church. And this is the world for Christians. And is this world for Christians very different from them? I think we can resonate very clearly with those Philippian Christians in a Roman colony. We're Australian Christians. But our citizenship is not really here, it's elsewhere. We are saved through God's grace. We are in a spiritual battle in this world. Its values are not God's values. Its values are not our values because we're God's people. We are necessarily on a collision course with competing worldviews. But we do know the ending. God has won. Paul reminds us that we're not on our own. We're part of this organic thing, the church. This is the body of Christ. We are part of a unit. We are part of a team. We cannot have solidarity on our own. We need to stand together, shoulder to shoulder. And our strength comes from our unity as God's new community. Paul knows no such thing as the isolated Christian. We don't do church alone. We do it together as the body of Christ. And we are enriched by, enriched by each part being together. And we are weakened when we do not come together. COVID has shaken the world and nonetheless the community of God's people. We've had virtual community and have been starved of real fellowship. Have we become lazy with the necessary health mandates of our governments? Have we become less secure and more socially anxious about coming out? Have the last two plus years weakened our togetherness in the gospel? Why don't we reinvigorate our fellowship together let us contend in paul's words as one man for the faith of the gospel let us contend as one man for the faith of the gospel it is in community that we can proclaim christ and encourage each other as we feed on his word together sing together the praise of his glorious name pray together and share life together and to do so in Christ's power. In our whatever moments, in your whatever moment, let's say with Paul, for I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Let us stand up.
I'll pray before we stand and sing. The prayer is a, is a, the song is a prayer as well. Um, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you do challenge us through these words of Paul. Thank you for the courage that Paul has shown and the way that you've used him to proclaim the gospel in so many parts of the world. We thank you that faithful generations have passed that message on to us and have stood firm. Thank you that many have been the seed that have grown the church. Their blood has nourished the land. Father, help us to be worthy of the calling you've given us. Help us to stand together with courage and conviction and boldness. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.